Hello, welcome to Strictly Money, where finance and your prosperity intersect. I'm your host, Sajal Patel. On this episode, I want to talk about the first home savings account. So this is a tax scheme that was introduced earlier this year by the federal government to help first-time home buyers, although a lot of financial institutions weren't able to offer it until recently. What's interesting, though, is that a recent BMO report showed that only 52% of first-time home buyers plan on leveraging it. Why is that? Do they not understand it or do they not think that this is beneficial? We're going to talk about this and much more. My guest for today's show is going to break it all down for you. I have Jason Heath on. Jason is a fee-only financial planner with Objective Financial Partners, and he's going to explain how it works and how to effectively use it. Hi, Jason. Thanks for coming on Strictly Money. Um, You can see that we have a new format. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you. So this recent report, interesting that first time home buyers are not leveraging the first home savings plan as much as people thought. What do you think is going on? Do you think that they just don't understand it? Do you think it's because it was available late? Or do you think it's other factors? I I think it's a whole combination of things. I think part of it is availability of FHSAs. They're still sort of being rolled out. I don't know for for certain now. I know there's a lot more uh, financial institutions that are coming on board, but I don't think you can open an FHSA everywhere yet. And even if you can open it at at your financial institution, it may not uh, have been sort of marketed or or promoted yet. Uh, Lots of people that I'm talking to have not heard of them. And even if they have heard of them, they're just not uh, up to speed on how they work. And beyond that, obviously, there's lots of people who just don't have money. Rents are are high, cost of living is high. And uh, even if they had money or they don't have the money to put in the FHSA in the first place. So what? let's talk about how it works, because I think, um, and that's an important piece, right? Because there's a lot of rules, obviously. And and, um, sometimes I'm finding that some people are confused by it. So just in general, we know that it's been marketed and and it is kind of the best of the TFSA as well as the RSP. So maybe walk us through that. It's exactly how I describe it, frankly. You know, it's like a, an RSP and a TFSA put together for, for saving for a home down payment. But maybe just to walk through how it works, you can contribute up to $8,000 per year to the account. You can contribute up to $40,000 in total to the account. And the contributions are tax deductible, like an RSP contribution. Interestingly, you don't have to deduct them in the year you contribute. So you can be 18 years old or 19 years old, depending on your province of residence. Maybe your income is fairly low. You can contribute to an FHSA and you can save the deduction for a future tax year when your income is higher. And then the TFSA aspect, I suppose, is on the withdrawal. If you're withdrawing the money for the purchase of a qualifying home, the withdrawal is completely tax-free. So it's like an RSP on the way in, a TFSA on the way out. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. So that's good to know that they don't actually have to take the tax deduction right away. So if they know that they're going to have a higher income in the next year, it may make more sense to take the tax deduction then. But it also means that you can't contribute say 16,000 in the first year, that the max is the eight. Not in the first year. In a subsequent year, you can. There is a, a nuance where you can carry forward up to $8,000 in unused contribution room. And this concept is kind of 
confusing, I find. But if you imagine a situation where somebody opens up an FHSA and they put in $1,000, they have $7,000 they didn't contribute towards the maximum in the first year that they have the account, they can carry that forward to the subsequent year. And they've got a new $8,000 of room, they've got $7,000 from the previous year. But say in the second year, they only put in $1,000 again, you'd think they now have $14,000 to carry forward to the subsequent year, but you can only cumulatively bring forward $8,000 of FHSA room. So I think one of the keys is if somebody is not in a position to make sizable contributions to an FHSA, you may need to think twice about when you open an FHSA account. Yeah, I was just going to say that, right? Then we're coming to the end of the year and maybe that's the thing that people are thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't open one if I'm not actually going to contribute. Yeah, it's fine balance. I think if somebody thinks that they're going to buy a home in the next five years, you probably want to open an FHSA account so you can get as many years of contributions uh, as you can. The other thing is, even if you don't expect to have the cash flow to make sizable contributions, if you have existing investment assets, you might be able to use those. TFSAs, tax-free savings accounts can be used however you want. You can always withdraw that money and contribute to an FHSA or use it for any other purchase or purpose for that matter. But an RRSP is another opportunity. If you've got existing RRSP savings, those can be transferred into an FHSA account towards your contribution room. So it might be a way to leverage, leverage existing assets, even though you might not have the income or cash flow to max out your contributions. That's a good point, Jason. Let's dig a little deeper, Jason. Like, what do you think is the real benefit of this? Because, you know, I hear on one hand, okay, this is great for first, you know, time home buyers. But like you said, a lot of people don't have the money. So if they don't have a lot of money, maybe they're not contributing as much. And like, does it really matter if they're in a low income bracket? I'm just assuming that they are. So they're not really benefiting that much from the tax deduction either. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I think I would never criticize a tax preferred account that gets introduced by the government. Tax savings, always good. But when I walk it through and I think about it, I think for people who are having a hard time scraping together money for a down payment in the first place, I don't know that this is exactly a game changer. And I mean, down payment aside, if home prices are high, you know, mortgage rates are high, it's hard to even qualify for a mortgage to, to buy a home. I don't know if FHSAs are, are definitely as compelling as maybe other policy alternatives. The one challenge that, that I'm seeing is if you have a wealthy parent or even grandparent for that matter, who has a lot of investment assets in a taxable non-registered account, they can give money to a child or grandchild uh, once they're 18 or 19, depending on the province, to contribute to their FHSA. I don't think that was the intention when the government introduced these FHSAs, but it certainly presents an opportunity for wealthy families to save tax and you know pass money along to the next generation. Oh, I didn't know that. So they would actually get the tax deduction? Well, the, the child or the grandchild still gets the tax deduction. Mom and dad or, or grandma and grandpa don't, but there's nothing to stop a parent or grandparent from giving money. There's no tax. Um, sometimes we, we deal with what are called the attribution rules when you give money to uh, a family member, but there's nothing to stop a parent or grandparent from helping uh, a child or grandchild build up their down payment. And I think it can be a great strategy for, for the right family. But again, was that the intention of the government when this was introduced? Probably not. Yeah. And you know, to your point, 
point, we certainly have uh, talked a lot about the bank of mom and dad, right? A lot of parents are are helping their their children out because um, a lot of kids are not in in that position. At least a lot of young folks. I'll tell you what else I thought was really interesting, Jason, in terms of you know looking at this and and whether it is a game changer or not. And and I agree with you because one of the challenges that has come up, and I talked about it initially, was that. The real benefit is the tax savings and, and how you invest inside of it. And with that limitation of just kind of, you know, 8,000, 8,000, 8,000 for five years, what do you invest in? It, it's it's pretty tough because, you know, I know a lot of people are like, okay, I'm going to put it in GICs and I'll get 5%. Well, if they put 8,000 in next year, chances are they're not going to get 5%. Do they put it in the market? Well, that might not be a great strategy either if they're planning on pulling the money out in three years. So it becomes limiting. For sure. I I think it's tough. I've always said that if somebody's got a relatively short time horizon for saving, and this sort of flies in the face of conventional advice to to young people, I find a lot of the advice out there is, oh, you're 20 years old, you know, invest aggressively for the long term, you get a long time horizon. I wholeheartedly disagree, whether it's an FHSA or another account, when you're 20 or 25 or 30, a lot of the money that you're saving is going to be used in short order for, you know, cars and home down payments and weddings and maternity or paternity leaves and childcare expenses and all that sort of stuff. So I find that young people often should be invested with a shorter time horizon. And if somebody thinks they're going to use their FHSA money within the next three to five years, I think you need to think about whether or not you take on a lot of stock market risk. Certainly, if you've got a short time horizon, I think you want to be in GICs or short term, fairly liquid investments. You know, if you look at a a five year time horizon over the last 100 years or so, stocks go up about 90% of the time. If you look at North American markets uh, over a five year period, a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, sort of a 60 40 traditional portfolio, generally is going to have a positive rate of return and historically has uh, over a five year period. Once you get under five years, particularly if you've got a lot of stock exposure, you're taking a risk. And that's not necessarily a risk you may want to take if you need all of your money at once on short order. Okay, Jason, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors and and we'll continue this conversation. Thanks, Agile. Are you looking to enhance the level of cash flow from your investments? BMO ETFs has you covered with their covered call ETFs. These ETFs generate cash flow from two sources, the dividend yield from the underlying securities and the premium generated from selling the call options. BMO covered call ETFs strike a balance between generating cash flow and participating in the growth of rising markets with your experienced portfolio management team and effective strategy with over 10 years of history. BMO ETFs is the largest covered call ETF provider in Canada, covering 13 covered call ETFs across a range of strategies across regions, countries, and sectors. Visit BMOETFs.com to learn more. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Welcome back. I'm here with Jason Heath, a fee-only financial planner. Jason, we've been talking about first home savings plans. Obviously, it's not the only tool that people can use and they have at their disposal. The good news is we have the TFSA, which um, you know I personally think offers a bit more flexibility. And we can't forget that there's the home buyer's plan as well. So they have access to that through the RSP. 
Definitely. TFSA is super flexible. You can use them for any purpose. I think if somebody is saving and they're not 100% sure on that next dollar being used for a down payment and they need flexibility for you know a new car or vacation or schooling or something else, you want to have some TFSA money set aside. Interestingly, back when the budget was introduced last spring, FHSAs were meant to be used not in addition to the home buyer's plan, but as a, as an alternative. In other words, you could only use one or the other. And when the legislation was passed, uh, that was one of the subtle changes made with FHSAs. You can use the uh, traditional home buyer's plan, which is when you contribute to your RRSP and you can withdraw currently up to $35,000 uh, for a, an eligible home purchase in conjunction with the FHSA. I think the advantage of an FHSA is you can contribute up to $40,000. With the home buyer's plan, you can withdraw up to $35,000. So I mean, an FHSA could grow to $50,000 or $100,000 or who knows how much money over a long period of time. The other real advantage of an FHSA over the home buyer's plan, with the home buyer's plan, you need to make eventual repayments into your RRSP. So it impedes your cash flow eventually over a 15-year repayment period. FHSAs, there's no such repayment. It's just money that you pull out, you use towards your down payment, and that's the end of the story. You know, you mentioned the um, the government and, and the subtle changes that they made. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they got some feedback as to, you know, uh, these changes, which I think was was welcome news. I have to tell you, I think if it were me, I would have made one specific change. I would have said, you're allowed to put in 40000 right up front, but you can't deduct all of it. You got to spread the deduction out. And then I think it would have just given people some flexibility, you know, being able to invest in the stock market. Now, again, you have to assume that they have that kind of cash laying around, but if they were getting support from their parents, um, perhaps that would have been the- Or money in their RRSP. I mean, likewise, yeah, you can transfer yeah. money from your RSP for sure. It's tough getting these things right. I find they're, they're, they're good, good-ish, you know? You mentioned something, you know, that in an, uh, a first home savings account, the FHSA, that yeah, it could grow grow to 60, 70,000 or, or even more, which brings me, I guess, to this point. How long can you op- keep the account open? You can keep an FHSA account open for up to 15 years, which I think is great for most people. If you think of even a, an 18 or a 19 year old opening an account right from the get go, that puts them into their mid 30s. I think it's conceivable, hopefully that they're in a position, especially if they're doing a lot of saving early, that they're putting a down payment down at some point during that uh, period of time. Uh, interestingly, um, there's no restriction on the age of somebody opening an FHSA. So you could have somebody in their 50s or 60s who opens an FHSA account. And there is uh, an age limit on uh, collapsing or using the account um, of December 31st of the year that you turn 71, which is the same as an RSP. Generally, you need to convert an RSP to a, a RIF by that point. Um, so you, you can have somebody who's uh, at an older age and stage who's a first-time home buyer who may qualify. Okay. And to qualify, Remind me, Jason, you have to be 18 or 19. You have to be a Canadian resident and obviously a first time home buyer. And you have to be living in that home, right? It's going to be your primary residence. Exactly. It needs to be an owner occupied home. It can't be a rental property or any sort of um, things like that. Um, one subtle uh, explanation, I think, as it relates to first time home buyer, um, that 
term is used in a few different capacities, including the home buyer's plan that we referred to. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're literally a first time home buyer. The definition is that you have not lived in a home that is owned by either you or your spouse or common law partner in the current year or in the previous four years. So you can be in a position where you re-qualify as a first-time home buyer if you've been renting for five years, if you've moved back in with parents, if there's been some other change. So it is something you can qualify for later in life again. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that because I know there's these nuances that, you know, people ask questions and they're not sure. So, you know, if say you're you're single and you're saving for a home and then you move in with a partner that you meet and they already have a home, how would that work? Could the person who's single still contribute if they to that existing home? I'm guessing not. Or, or would they sell and buy a different? No, unfortunately, but only, only something that can be used for a for a new home. And I mean, it's interesting. You figure there should be a, a nuance there to allow you within the first year or something like that to to pull the money out and use it towards paying down the mortgage or or something like that. Um, So uh, generally, in order to open an account and in order to withdraw from the account, you need to be a a first-time home buyer. If you happen to move into a home, it doesn't mean that, you know, the account is suddenly collapsed or anything like that. It just means you can't withdraw and use it for the purchase of um, a home with the tax-free component. But there are other nuances on the back end to be able to, for example, transfer the money into uh, your RRSP as as a backup plan in a situation like that. The alternative, if you are unable to use your FHSA money for whatever reason, is if you pull the money out, it's completely taxable. And it sounds really punitive, but it kind of makes sense because on the way in, the money is tax deductible. On the way out, the money is taxable unless it's used for an eligible home purchase or transfer to your RSP. Right. Now that's also interesting. And I actually thought that was a great benefit. I'm like, you know, it doesn't hurt because you can open one up. If you never use it, you can transfer it to an RSP. Again, same thing applies though, right? When you pull it out from an RSP at some point, obviously same rules apply, it would be taxable. For sure. I think it's it's interesting. I, you know, even if somebody is a renter and is never going to purchase a home, it creates extra RSP room, you know, that you wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, It doesn't reduce your RSP room. It's a real opportunity, I think, for anybody, whether, you know, obviously, ideally for for saving towards a home purchase, but uh, yeah, definitely a great, great new opportunity. One of the challenges, I think, is now you've got TFSAs, FHSAs, RSPs, lions and tigers and bears on my, I mean, which do you contribute to it? It creates more complexity for sure, but, uh, (laughs) you know, Good tax savings. It does, it does. Yeah, and I'm sure it was an admin headache for a lot of the financial institutions. That's why they've been slow. Yeah, yeah. I was also wondering too, I was thinking, why didn't they just do something within the TFSA or something else, you know, that just would have made it easier. I wish they'd done that. It would have been a lot easier, you think, for for everybody, but, uh, you know, go figure. It is what it is. Any caveats that you would flag to our listeners or reviewers? One positive thing is, uh, again, this is is something that uh, both spouses can take advantage of. So if you've got a a common law spouse or a a legally uh, married partner, um, you can both double up. You can both contribute $8,000 per year or $40,000 in total to the FHSA. Um, That's the the good. Like I mentioned on on the bad side previously, you know, if you get started too early and you put in 100 bucks or 500 bucks or a small amount, you could be in a position where you reduce 
the total amount you can contribute because you do just have that $8,000 of room that you can carry forward. So ideally, you want to try to avoid, if you can, having multiple years in a row where you contribute less than the $8,000 maximum. So it may require a little bit of planning to try to figure out when the right time is to open an FHSA. Okay. Um, Jason, I always love having you on. Now, before I let you go, and um, you might not be aware of this, <laughs> but um, I'm trying something new with my gas. And, and you know that I, I launched Strictly Money really to try to make financial wellness go viral, you know, really try to educate Canadians on, on matters, money matters that that mean the most to them so they can navigate through all the all the complexities. So I want to ask you sort of three rapid round questions. Pretty simple. You ready? Let's go. Okay. What is the best financial advice you've received? Best financial advice, I think, boy, I mean, I could answer three or four times over, but I think probably to save first and spend second. I think that's one of the challenges that people often run into is that they save what's left over and oftentimes there's nothing left over. So if you save first and make it a habit, make it an expense, make it like a mortgage payment or a rent payment or whatever else, and you spend the rest, if you're hitting your savings targets, you don't have to feel guilty about spending everything else by the end of the month. Yeah, I love that one. Now, are you one that does the whole pay yourself first? Because I thought that was a great concept. I don't know how many people read The Wealthy Barber, but it was one of the first books I read. I mean, look, it's a, it's a David Chill and wealthy barber uh, concept that uh, I think is just really important to make it something that you do every month because uh, there's so many excuses otherwise to, to not save, you know, oh, this happened or that happened or this extraordinary expense. And every month there's a new extraordinary expense that can impede you from hitting your financial goals. You know, I have to tell you, I, I run a, an online financial program um, for women and, and a lot of them would, would struggle with saving. And I got them onto this whole pay yourself first and, and I would get emails weekly just saying, I can't believe how much I'm saving and I don't miss it. I don't miss what I don't see, right? So you just got to try it. You got to try set up that system. What is the worst financial advice you've received? You know, I, I think any time that uh, I get in a conversation with with somebody about trying to time the the stock markets or interest rates or you know wheel and deal and buy and sell, and uh, it's it's tough because the financial media, which you and I are a part of, spends an awful lot of time talking about oh stocks are up because of this or bonds are down because of that, and here's what's going to happen with interest rates or oil or whatever in 2024. So the the media really you know plays on that. And I think there's a lot of people that believe that the financial industry in particular is able to predict things and sometime, somehow has this you know, crystal ball that's going to enable them to know what's going to happen. And there's a lot of good data out there. There's a lot of good um, you know, research, Nobel Prize winning research even, and long histories that show that it's very difficult to predict where things are going to go. So I think that if it's that difficult for pension fund managers and financial advisors and you know, prominent people that have their fingers on the pulse of, of the markets to predict what's going to happen next, for any individual investor to be able to do it and to try to be day trading and wheeling and dealing. And uh, I think it's a recipe for disaster. It's, you know, makes for interesting fodder on, uh, you know, a show like this or, or just generally in articles and radio and, and other things. But I think people need to be careful by trying to outsmart the markets because the markets are prone to outsmart you. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, as you know, I was uh, a correspondent for CNBC for, uh, for 
for a number of years and as well as being in. And, and I loved talking about the markets, you know, the ups and downs. But I always remember thinking like, this is a lot of noise that, you know, if you're in a diversified proper portfolio, again, it's noise. Like it shouldn't matter. I'm happy to talk about it and speculate about it and say, here, if I had to guess, like if I had to, you know, I'm probably going to be wrong, but it, it makes for interesting discussion. But, you know, to be able to predict the markets consistently, um, tough to do. Okay. So the last question, if you could give people one advice on how to make sure that they are financially secure or financially well, that you feel people are not doing, <laughs> what would it be? I think the most important thing that people can do to feel secure financially is to learn, is to, you know, watch shows like this, you know, is to read articles like I write, to absorb stuff and talk to friends and family and, and professionals. I find the more information you collect, the better questions you can ask, the more comfortable you start to feel with your finances, whether it's your investments or just your saving or retirement or whatever the case may be. The more knowledgeable you are, I think the more powerful you can be from a financial security perspective. And sometimes I worry that the financial industry prefers people to not be as knowledgeable, to not ask as many questions. And uh, again, you know, I, I think the, the more you know, the better. It'll make you more comfortable. It'll make you a better investor. It'll make you just more prepared for bad things when they happen in your financial life. And uh, oftentimes they say that, you know, people who engage in like long-term financial planning, which could be really long term, like retirement planning, tend to be more confident and happy and stress less about their finances than someone who's just sort of focusing on month to month. So try to have sort of a long game approach in mind and, and just build your knowledge. Yeah, I like they say, right, knowledge is the best investment. And, and you know, I make that point as well. And obviously why I, I run a financial education platform, but also that it's okay to delegate. I think um, I feel like the media and there's just too many messages out there that suggest that you should be doing everything yourself. Well, we can't. It's pretty difficult to to manage, you know, your entire financial plan because it's not just investing. It's tax planning, it's retirement planning, it's debt management, it's estate planning, right? So I always say it's okay to delegate. You just want to be involved. Absolutely. I mean, I'll share. I'm a, a financial planner. I, I manage my own investments. I do my own personal tax return. I've got an accountant who does my corporate tax return. I've got an accountant that gives me tax strategy advice. I've got lawyers I use for different purposes. So even though I give financial and tax and estate planning advice to people, I still have other professionals that I run stuff by because you just, you can't know everything. Yeah. And so do I. It's uh, it's always good to have a professional you know, who looks at this all the time as a good sounding board. Jason, again, thanks so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Sajel. Always a pleasure. Well, that wraps up this edition of Strictly Money. You can always catch previous episodes on YouTube as well as Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review if you love what you're seeing. I'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay well, stay wise, and stay wealthy.